0: Private Club Radio, your weekly source for industry education, news, and discussion. Broadcasting from Tampa, Florida, ladies and gentlemen, here is your host, Gabriel Aloisi.
1: Hey, hey, welcome to another edition of Private Club Radio, the show that brings you what you want to hear. And we're doing that today on Private Club Radio. We'll be speaking with Norm Spitzig on board governance. That was a topic overwhelmingly requested by our listeners, and who better than Norm Spitzig of Master Club Advisors, to tell us a little bit about what's going on around the country, some trends that are happening with governance. He's got some great ideas for you, so you're going to want to pay close attention and break out the notebooks today. After Norm, we'll be chatting with Chase Victorson, who is an attorney specializing in employment law issues within the club space, so stay tuned for that one. Just a couple days left, and I wanted to remind you about it. On Thursday this week, the National Club Association webinar series continues. I am going to be the presenter. We'll be talking about modern membership strategies. So if your club has a desire to bring in some younger generations to lower the average age of membership at the club, you're going to want to tune in for that one. It is Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. If you want to register, head over to nationalclub.org. And I hope to see you there. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and bring on the master class. And now it's time for your monthly masterclass, presented by Master Club Advisors. Well, we're on the line today with Norm Spitzig, Principal and Senior Partner of Master Club Advisors for another edition of Masterclass. Norm, welcome once again to the Masterclass.
2: It is always happy to be talking with you, uh, Gabe, and look forward to having a good conversation today as we always do.
1: Yeah. So we've had a number of listeners use our topic poll on the web and they voted for board governance as a topic they'd really want to talk about. So who better to talk about board governance than you, Norm? You just got uh, finished speaking with the Louisiana club managers on the subject. Can you talk a little bit about what went down during that session?
2: I can. Uh, As a lead-in, though, board governance has always been a topic that's near and dear to my heart. You know, I taught it at Michigan State and BMI three for fifteen plus years, and and uh, you know, over the over the years, I've seen boards evolve and how they look at their responsibilities. And it's you know, it's the very core of a success for a club. If you're governed properly, I think think you're setting the stage for long term success in all facets. Yeah, the uh, Louisiana club managers have an annual summer getaway. They usually go to a city in the panhandle. Uh, I've spoken to them twice. This time we're in Pensacola and it's a weekend where they bring their spouses and family and have a pretty good, pretty good time. But on Sunday they have a speaker. And as I said, I've had the good fortune of speaking there a couple of times and I talked uh, about a number of things, but the key central idea was looking at governance trends in private clubs. What, What are clubs doing in terms of how they're attacking their governance? Often this, this, um, approach is part of a larger issue a strategic plan and we can talk about that in a little more detail but but it's really i think appropriate for clubs to take a step back and say all right are we governing ourselves properly what can we do to be better what are what's happening at other clubs that we might learn from
1: yeah so what are some of those trends that you're seeing across the country norm
2: well let's just start with sort of the basic i think overarching one i've seen a number of clubs um take more seriously in the last four or five years the approach to having a strategic plan for the club. And we've talked about this in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically, you think of a strategic plan as most basic is a sort of a list of capital needs for the next five years. And that's clearly a part of a good strategic plan. You know, how are we going to pay for these capital expenditures? What are they? What's their priority? And that's That's all good stuff. But I've seen it to be really strategic. It's much more than just a laundry list of capital needs. It's also, uh, oh, I think an introspective hard look at your club governance, uh, taking a hard look at your membership marketing practices. What do we do to attract and retain quality new members? I know that's obviously a topic near and dear to you. Oh, yeah. um, every time I go, your your book is mentioned by me. It's really awesome.
1: <laughs> Thank you. appreciate that.
2: Well, it is. It's is true. But, that should be part of any um, strategic plan. You know, do we have enough quality members? Most clubs don't. If we don't, what are we going to do strategically so that in the next five years we achieve X new members and have a waiting list? That's really, really, really important. But the governance piece is also something that a lot of clubs are looking at as part of their strategic plan. What what can we do to make sure that we are governing ourselves properly? in tune with what other clubs are doing in a way that will allow us to attract and retain good people to serve on our board. And it's a big issue. Uh, I just got back from a club in Louisiana. Uh, I've got four strategic plans going on now, and this one's winding down. But probably their biggest topic beyond the capital needs was, let's really, let, let's be honest, look in the mayor and see if we can fix some of the governance things that we're doing that really don't make sense.
1: Wow. Yeah. So is it is it kind of getting into the size of the board or the, the tenure of the board, or is it even more deep than that?
2: Well, th- those are two great lead-ins. And, and first of all, I would say a trend over the last decade, and it's confirmed um, anecdotally by me, but it's also confirmed by the club benchmarking data that you see smaller-sized boards of directors, that the number of people on club boards has gone down from something like 11 to nine and a half or something like that. Mm -hmm. Some of that may be on purpose. I think a lot of it's just the way society is today. I think it's harder to get good people who want to give their time to serve on a board um, unless they really have a clearly defined list of expectations about what being on that board is. You know, the day when you served on the board because it was your turn and, you just sort of did it, and didn't think about it, and you filled in your time by going to a meeting every third Wednesday for the next three years. It's kind of over. People sure. want to people want to say, I'm, I'm going to serve, but I want to know the parameters of my responsibility. I want to know how long the meetings are. I want to know if we actually can accomplish anything or we're just sitting around talking and having a few drinks. I think people are, are, are much more conscious about their time, and they're going to serve. But the first trend is that there are smaller-sized boards, uh, and... and as I said, I think some of that is conscious. I think people really think you can be more effective. I think we can be more pointed. We can get the job done, if you will, if we don't have 72 people sitting around the room talking. So,
1: right. For like 10 hours or something. <laughs> <laughs>
2: for 10 hours. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, the flip side of that is there's smaller size committees. Um, I've seen, um, I'll, I'll give you one club, uh, again, the club that I'm working with in Louisiana, part of their strategic plan, they had a Dysfunctionally large number of people on their grounds committee. They had like twenty something people on the grounds committee, wow. and it's not like they were evil or anything. It just kind of grew, and as someone asked to serve on it, they said yes. Mm-hmm. They had a trouble retiring people from it, and it grew into sort of this—I uh, don't know—monthly discussion where they got together and had a good time, but weren't particularly very productive. And you know that's not good for the GM, and certainly not good for the superintendent having twenty people telling you what to do. So. So the smaller size committees, uh, the flip side of that, of course, is I think there's fewer committees. Mm -hmm. And maybe the best example of a strategic plan looking at committees is saying, look, we've had, I'm just making this up. We've had a uh, ladies beautification committee in the locker room started 10 years ago when we redid our locker room. And it just kind of took a live unto itself. And it's not like it's bad or anything. Uh, the locker room needs to be maintained, and, and I'm not making fun of any of that, but let, let's take a step back and say that we really need this committee. So a lot of clubs, part of their planning, have said, look, let's, what clubs do we need? Or, excuse me, what committees do we need? Let's reaffirm that it's important. If it's important, let's continue with it. Let's redefine how many people are on there, what their tenure is. But if it's not important, for heaven's sake, let's get rid of it. Um, so that's clearly something. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that, Then one trend that that uh, I think is pretty interesting is that you're starting to see a, an increased number of tenure longer tenures for board members. Uh, one of my favorite examples is a good friend of mine, Bobby Carfasi, who runs New Orleans Country Club. Uh, Bobby was actually at the meeting and, he and I had a chance to catch up, sharp, sharp guy. Uh, New Orleans Country Club has a governance structure which I think would be the envy of many. Um, But it's hard to switch to it. They have nine people on their board, and they elect one new board member every year. And that new board member, in theory, is a person who has the desire and capacity to serve as president during his his or her last year or two. So think about it. By the time you get to be president of New Orleans Country Club, you've been on the board six, seven, eight years. You've served in various capacities. You've been through maybe a capital project or not, uh, or two. You really understand the culture of the club. You're not, um, you know, sort of a rebel rouser out to change things uh, just for change sake, for random. And so that the club really has a smooth, governance you know it's much more like corporate governance when you get on a corporate board you're you're on for four or five six years you're not on for one year and then you get transitioned out. so i really like that
1: so as a manager how do you begin to steer the ship and 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 move your club in that types of direction that you see that's really effective in these other clubs when people have been doing the same thing for so long
2: well First off, and, and I'm, I'm a big believer, you've got to give people the facts. And if the facts say that these are trends that are happening in clubs, I think it's your job incumbent as the GM to to give the G, to give your board the facts so they can make prudent decisions based upon the facts. You know, in my time as the general manager of the board, hardly approved every suggestion I made. I mean, I would make them and hopefully most of them were reasonable and they thought they were good and approved them. Mm-hmm. But you're, they're not going to approve everything you do or support every motion that you make i think the gm's job maybe in certainly in clubs and in every corporation is really to be the steerer behind the scenes and in such a way if you're really effective to think that they have the board think that there was their idea and they accomplished it when you're really kind of steering the rudder to keep them in the right direction i mean i think that's your job if you're a general manager of a club by definition you better know more than most of the people on the board they're volunteers they're good for long-term thinking and strategy and governance but when it comes to the day-to-day operations and the facts needed to be successful, you've got to give them the tools and the information to to, to choose wisely, if you will. I think that's your job.
1: Yeah. And you got to build the trust, obviously, because, uh, you know, I, I don't think we can really have this discussion without talking about the tenure of general managers and, and how short, on average, that tenure is. How do you see that playing out, Norm?
2: Yeah, you're right. I, um, You can go in, you know, I do a fair amount of placements around, you know, for general managers, and you can be the best GM in the world, literally. And you still have to earn your trust over time from the board by proven, you know, accomplishment over time. It's not, you can't be a six-month wonder and then run out of ideas. Um, You have to act ethically. You have to understand the business. You have to implement prudently. And trust does not come in two weeks. No matter how often you beat your chest and say, trust me, it doesn't come. Sure. You've got to perform over time. And you're right. The irony of it is is that if turnover is, for general managers, is so, so short, by the time that they've gained the trust of the entire board and the membership and the confidence, sometimes they leave. And that's mm-hmm. the irony of the whole thing. It's sort of the... You know, an inherent flaw in the governance system of private <laughs> yeah. clubs. It really is.
1: Same. Yeah. <laughs> any, any advice for, for maybe a shortcut on how to build trust or build that rapport with the board? I know you talked about, you know, being, you know, being able to present the facts to them in, in, in a unbiased way, but is there anything else that you could, you could give in terms of uh, advice <laughs> to general managers out there?
2: It's, it's a good question. I think trust comes again. I say, I said this before, but with, with proven, Competence over time. I think you just continue to act in an ethical way. You work hard. You show you're dedicated to the club. You do whatever it takes to make the club successful, obviously within the bounds of the budget and the, you know, ethical behavior. But as people see that you really care about the members and you're trying to do the right thing over time, they're going to say, "Hey, we got a winner." And you know, you you, you build up brownie points, if you will, that every time you do something for some member just because it's the right thing to do. In two years, that member, he didn't do this for self-serving reasons, but that member now got elected to the board, and they say, hey, I remember when Norm helped me two years ago. He is a good guy. He knows what he's talking about, and when you're at a club a long time, that trust is kind of naturally there, and it's you just earn it over time.
1: Yeah. Where in the industry, Norm, would you be looking for some of this some of this, um, good data or some of this advice? I know you guys are, are linked up with club benchmarking. Is there anybody else you'd suggest general managers take a look at?
2: Oh, I think the National Club Association has some some pretty good publications uh, for sure. Obviously, you mentioned club benchmarking. I'm a, I'm a big fan of club benchmarking. We just got back from our Human Resource Symposium last week, and uh, it was really awesome. Uh, we went to Farmington Country Club Yep. And uh, Charlottesville, nice. we were there the the week after their trouble, but it was actually pretty calm when we were there. I think people were kind of apprehensive, but the seminar was really good. It was forty five HR directors of some of the really bigger clubs and gated mm-hmm. communities around there, and and um, they expanded the club benchmarking data from general managers, and we're talking about uh, develop them um, developing a program that would really identify all the key positions in the world of private clubs. I, I, I'll get this wrong, but they had something like over a thousand different titles and what they were trying to do was distill down the titles into sort of job, you know, uh, descriptions so that we could have 150 or 200 key job descriptions and then get the compensation data for that. It was a daunting task and they're in the process of doing it. So again, there's a way of getting the facts. So, you know, that if you're a, you're sous chef, uh, in a certain part of the country, the range is X dollars to X dollars. So, yeah. you know, that's an ongoing, prog- um, Project It's pretty interesting,
1: actually. Nice, nice. But getting back to you know resources out there, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about club management perspectives, which is your own publication. I know you're a humble guy, but why don't we talk about that a little bit and why that's such a great uh, resource for managers out there?
2: Well, thank you for that. I, I think it is actually. Uh, we've uh, hired a new editor about uh, six months ago, and Gary Collins and I are really proud of the first three issues. Our subscriptions are starting to grow. Uh, you know, we've we've taken off pretty well, and. And we'd encourage people, if you're interested to give me a call or Gary, send us a note and we'll add you to the list. Uh, we, we've had regular contributions from some of the top people in the industry. Greg Patterson is a regular. You are a regular. Um, I'm just trying to think of the people who've contributed. Kathy lots, O'Neill, lots new, I know, had
1: a great article last month.
2: Yeah, Lots of new cutting you know, edge articles about how to be successful in in terms of club operations, in terms of governance. We actually have a... Fair number of people are subscribing and readers who are directors, which that makes me feel good that they take yeah. the time to read that too. So you know, that's okay. all we can do is offer the the cutting edge ideas and continue to uh, keep our our subscribers informed.
1: Well, what I like about yours and and I, we didn't have this discussion before, but I just want to let listeners know my my true candid thoughts is that you are you do sort of push the boundaries, and I think your your publication more so than others out there really really gets into some. Interesting things that are outside the box, um, and I just think you guys do a really good job of sourcing that information from around the industry. And it's just it's just a first class publication that people need to check cool. out.
2: Thank you, I really appreciate it. I really do. Thank you, that's and I'm, we're proud of it. We really are. Um, I before we before we kind of um, wrap or switch to a different topic. If we do, just just so p- if people are interested, the other trends that were emerging. I think in terms of governance are, and I'll say them pretty quickly, I I, I think boards are taking a hard look at the number of times they meet each year. Just because for the last 50 years, the club has met the third Wednesday of the month every month, the club board has met on the third Wednesday of the month at five o'clock at night. um, Maybe we don't need to meet every month. Maybe we could switch to quarterly or heaven help us. Maybe we could switch to a 7 a.m. or 730 AM breakfast meeting because people gotta go to work at 830 or 9.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's, that's my idea. definition
2: <laughs> will will limit sort of random discussion mm-hmm. and talking for four hours. You know, that's I know a, that's sort of artificial, but I think that's actually pretty clever.
1: That's a great idea. Um,
2: I I think clubs are also conscious about tools and techniques to reduce the time of their meetings. So no more Asking the ground superintendent to rehash the discussion that occurred at the grounds committee meeting just to rehash it in advance of the meeting He has to write a one-page report summarizes uh, The meeting minutes and also says here is the one action item that requires board approval We don't repeat anything. You've read it. Here's the one action item. and Let's move on Um, So I think those are two more things that if you're a good board You could step back and say, you know, we really need to look let's just not meet For the heck of a meeting. And, and, you know, maybe there's nothing inherently evil with that. There just isn't. I just think in today's world, again, that goes against the grain of most people. I have a limited amount of time. I love my club, but I am not going to sit through a four-hour meeting and listen to a rehash of things that I already read. I'm just not going to
1: do it. Right. Like you say, it forces the situation, uh, to the conversation to be the most effective that it can be in the the time that is allotted. So I love that idea. So those are four great, wonderful ideas. And I knew you'd be the person to talk to. This is just a small piece of a presentation you're actually going to be giving up in Pittsburgh in October. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that one, Norm.
2: Well, you're on the on the docket too, and I'm pretty excited. Um, I just uh, got an email about the expected number of people coming. They think they're gonna get maybe 100 to 120 people, which would be great.
1: That's awesome. Um,
2: I've got four or five topics that I'm talking about. One of them is this club governance thing, um, and where we're going. And just uh, another one is is you and I've talked about actually in a webinar some of the warning signs to look for um, when you're you're about willing to take a new job. And we've, I know we've talked yep. about that, but I think that's a topic near and dear to people. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about strategic planning in more detail and the steps of strategic planning and what, what you need to do to, to kind of um, uh, you know make it effective without being onerous. And then I've got a little information about expectations by age. And I hate to categorize people. Actually, I was in Charlottesville, I ended up sitting at the table with the chronological uh, millennials and the first thing they made me say is, don't you dare call us millennials, or we'll call you an old baby boomer. <laughs> and, I, and I love that, because That's they weird. said we're individuals, and sure, there are, there are topics that may appeal to us, but let's not talk about it. We really had a great discussion, so so That's I've learned awesome not about. to group people, but we're going to talk <laughs> a little bit about it. And then part of, my, part of my presentation is going to be, I hope, especially fun. And I put together a list of about 25 or 30 of my all-time favorite quotes. From people who were very, very successful and influential in the club industry. Nice. And in music, the quotes, which I think are memorable and pithy and things that you'd say, holy cow, I like that. And use those quotes as a life lesson learning tool about how we can become more effective as club managers. And I'm, hopefully mine will be participative. You know, I'm, I'm on for a pretty long time, so I want to get the audience engaged. And, you know, I've been working on the PowerPoint and I'm really looking forward to a good gathering.
1: That's pretty cool, maybe you'd have people vote on what they think is the number one quote or anything like that that'd be kinda of interesting so I look yeah, forward to seeing yeah. that norm for sure. How about master club advisors anything going on here uh, any more symposiums coming up uh this year any
2: yeah, we have, yeah we do we have two we have two more coming up and next month we're going to uh country club of little rock for the great clubs of the south symposium uh we've got a, a dual keynote speaker we're really excited about it and the the um the um attendance this far out. Club managers are notoriously last-minute registers. They just register it. They, they just really are. But we've got a good crowd signed up already, and we could, we'll get forty or fifty people. And then the following month, we're going to uh, Mirasol and Ibis, both clubs in the Palm Beach Gardens area, for our gated community symposium. So uh, we've been partnering with club benchmarking on those, and uh, we're pretty excited about the, the content, the speakers, and the proposed discussion. So those two are coming up in the next couple months.
1: Awesome. Norm, thanks so much for coming on here for another Masterclass presented by Master Club Advisors. Always a pleasure to speak with you, sir.
2: Thanks. You have a great day. I'll see you soon. All
1: right, Bye-bye. Norm. To learn more about Master Club Advisors, visit them on the web at
0: masterclubadvisors.com and join us next month for another Masterclass.
1: That's one of my favorite segments that we do here every month on Private Club Radio. Really lucky to have Norm give us those master classes here. Awesome stuff. All right. Well, our next guest is going to come and talk to us about employment issues within the private club industry. And our guest is Chase Victorson of Victorson Professional Corporation. He's a licensed attorney specializing in employment law within the private club space, specifically country clubs, but also tennis and yacht clubs and various small businesses. He's worked in just about every capacity at country clubs. He's fallen in love with clubs from an early age. And he studied sports management and economics at Loyal University in Chicago, went to law school in San Diego, where he focused on sports law and business structure. And his goal now is to help private clubs avoid the various potential pitfalls out there. So let's bring him on, Chase Victorson. Chase, welcome to Private Club Radio. Gabe, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Chase, first thing I want to ask you is on your LinkedIn bio, I read that you practice disruptive employment law, you called it. So what does that mean exactly?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, disruptive in the sense that uh, most people don't don't think that they need to deal with it. there's a lot of uh, nuances that come along with employment law, and unfortunately, uh, private clubs, for some reason, uh, think they've got a pretty good handle on it. So, uh, you know, everything from, from dealing with handbooks, which is pretty standard, to um, actually talking you, you through the processes, uh, you know, we really focus on kind of employment law as it applies specifically to country clubs because, uh, like I said, they, they generally are almost woefully unprepared.
1: So, for you, what are the biggest employment issues affecting the private club industry today? Like, what's the the single biggest one you see out there?
0: Uh, absolutely. I would say, generally speaking, it's probably either misclassification of workers. So, um, when you are classifying a worker as either an employee or an independent contractor, um, you affect... You know, for instance, how much you have to pay them in minimum wage uh, and things of that nature. And because clubs have very unique uh, employment structures, if you've got, say, valets that come on uh, to the property for an event, how do you classify them? How are you paying them if you're hiring uh, temp workers that are working for uh, as servers? You know, mm-hmm. so a lot of times that will affect, you know, minimum, uh, how much you have to pay them in minimum wage if they need overtime, uh, you know, things like that. So I, I'd say we see see a lot of that. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty wide. There's, you know, like I said, clubs generally, uh, if they do focus on HR at all, it's usually in the sense that they make sure somebody's on payroll, uh, you know, that they have their I-9 in order, and that's about the extent of it. So, we see issues across the spectrum. I mean, you know, talking about employment at will, uh, you know people think that that means you can fire anybody at any time for mm-hmm. any reason which is is somewhat true but uh, not a 100% true you can't fire them for an illegal reason um, you know things like that uh, we see people who create employment contracts with their handbooks uh, that's a big issue so uh, a lot of people think that uh, employment at will uh, always prevails which generally speaking is the general rule but if you have a policy in your employee handbook and then you don't follow that policy You can create what's essentially a quasi-contract, and then uh, you can get tagged for uh, unlawful um, discharge if you fire somebody not uh, in line with that process.
1: All right. Well, let's talk first about um, misclassification. That's one thing you brought up. So what are some of the ways that you can help people solve their misclassification issues, or how do they go about solving that at their club?
0: Absolutely. So classification really comes down to your job function uh, and and how much you're paying. I mean, there's, there's a few factors, but uh, really the general rule I would say is control. Uh, so let me take a step back. Uh, classification in terms of an independent contractor or an employer. So you don't have to pay independent contractors minimum wages, uh, things like that. You don't have to pay them overtime. Uh, independent contractors, think of like a plumber, somebody that comes on and does work for you, but you're not really um, controlling what they do. Uh, Whereas an employee, uh, the courts generally will look at the amount of control that you exert. uh, Picture, uh, you know, like a a office manager or something like that. Um, So, you know, that's one of the big things is if you hire, say, a painter uh, to come paint your clubhouse, and then you instruct, you're going to use this paint, you're going to use this brush. You're you're starting to push the boundary, and you know it might be cheaper to say, all right, I'm going to pay you the two hundred dollars, you know, whatever you uh, you want me to pay you. And if I exert enough control over you, then you can become an employee, even though we call it uh, an independent contractor. So it's really making people aware of mm-hmm. of these pitfalls. Um, you know, it's a very situation specific. I think that's that's part of the issue that a lot of clubs don't realize is that uh, you know you might understand the difference between an employee and an independent contractor, but you don't realize that their their status could change over time or. Uh, You know, for instance, there's this thing called the joint employer rule. Uh, The joint employer rule essentially states that even if you don't uh, have somebody who is your employee, if you exert enough control over them, they will be deemed an employee and then you'll have to, uh, you know, like I said, pay minimum wage and things like that. So, for example, I think it was in New Jersey earlier this year, this, this painting company hired temps, right? So a temp agency sent these people to go work for the painting company, the owner of the painted company paid the temp agency. He didn't pay the employees at all, um, but the courts deemed that he was a joint employer. Uh, but the issue was then the temp company wasn't paying their people minimum wage. So because the company, that hi- the painted company was deemed a joint employer, he was then liable to the tune of, I think it was like $200,000 plus punitive damages. Uh, you know, for failing to pay minimum wage and things like that. So, you know, it's it's really just kind of making people aware of, you know, the, the laws and, and saying, you know, this is where it applies. This is where it doesn't apply. You know, if it's a gray area, these are the steps you should be taking to make sure that, you know, if, if it's possibly employee, I would say err on the side of caution, you know, pay them the hourly wage and pay them overtime rather than hoping that they're an independent contractor and that the courts will agree with you because that, in my experience, tends to not end up the way
1: you'd like it to. Sure, sure. This may naturally lead into the next question, which uh, reading some of your biography information, some things about you, Chase, it looks like you've found three areas that most clubs need help in when it comes to human resources and employment issues. What are those three things for you, Chase?
0: Absolutely. So I would say just generally knowing how, well, generally knowing, like I said, the, the basic rules, you know, there's some pretty standard Laws that I think most clubs are hopefully are aware of, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're not. That would be, uh, you know, Fair Labor Standards Act, making sure that you're paying your employees the correct wages. Um, there's the National Labor Relations uh, Act, which deals with how uh, employees interact with unions, if they're forming a union, if they are in a union. Um, there's the Family Medical Leave Act, which obviously deals with uh, taking leave. But I would say, you know, the, the biggest way the biggest thing that clubs can do to kind of protect themselves uh, is just be aware of the laws because the laws for the most part are pretty easy to understand. If you know where to look for them, Uh, you just have to make sure that you're, you're crossing all your T's, dotting all your I's.
1: Are there some other issues there that, that are kind of glaring holes that clubs seem to make the same mistake across the country? Clubs
0: tend to, Cover just the, the basic issues. So um, another thing that I see that clubs uh, get wrong oftentimes is they will. Um, so there's this thing called an exempt employee, right? So you don't have to pay overtime to an exempt employee, and this kind of goes back to the misclassification, which is why I was saying that it uh, you know it's, it's a pretty broad area. But uh, exempt employees, and there's there's I believe there are five exceptions. So if you're exempt, you don't have to pay this person. Uh, over time. So, there's the professional exemption, the executive exemption, the administrative exemption, uh, outside sales, and then there's some computer-related uh, jobs. So, you know, a lot of people get tripped up because you know there are very specialized requirements. You know, For instance, how much the person gets paid per week, what their job duties are, uh, and things like that, that will put them in their exemption. But a lot of clubs will think uh, and actually tell their employees, well, you're, you're salaried, therefore you're exempt. And that that's a huge uh, issue uh, because that's Obviously, based on what I just said, not uh, how you qualify for the exemption. Uh, another thing I see a lot of is, is comp time versus overtime. So uh, a lot of clubs have policies whereby if you work, let's say, forty-five hours in a week, then you get five hours of comp time. You know, where you don't have to work or or something to that effect. Uh, and they'll oftentimes say, you know, you could take five hours off and we'll pay you for the five hours even if you don't work in lieu of overtime. But actually, that's a uh, that's a pretty big no, no on the federal level. And a lot of states actually have more strict laws. So, um, you know, oftentimes you'll see clubs who are you know, having policies uh, in their handbooks. You know, uh, that's another example. Um, they'll have policies in their handbooks. It's not even necessarily anything that they're doing that's per se illegal. But it will be a policy that uh, violates the law on its face. So, for example, under the National Labor Relations Act, any two employees that are uh, acting uh, in a concerted effort to create a union, um, that behavior is protected. So, if you have two employees that are just talking about how much they hate their boss and, man, you know, I wish we could get some respect, you know, something to that nature. Well, a lot of companies have. Language in their handbook that says you will not disparage the club, you know you won't uh, talk about uh, the club to members, things like that. Uh, well, on its face, it doesn't seem really bad, you know you can't disparage the club, but in certain circumstances, uh, that could be preventing a conser- concerted effort by uh, employees to form a union. So, if you know two employees are saying, "I like I said, I, I want to get rid of the boss. We need to get somebody that respects us. Um, you know, the, the boss is an idiot." You know, that's a, a good example. Um, you know, that the club might say, all right, well, you violated the rules and you're fired. Um, but that rule is, is violative of National Labor Relations Act, and you're going to find yourself on the wrong end of a lawsuit. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, dealing with uh, hiring and firing issues, you know, a lot of people think that uh, as long as I don't discriminate, that um, I should be fine. But, you know, there's so many protected classes now, it's hard really to know whether or not you're necessarily discriminating and and even worse than that, I would say, is the fact that oftentimes um, you can have what's called an implicit bias, right? So if you are, and I'll take it outside of the context of clubs just because this is the example that came to my mind, but if you're only accepting applicants from a certain area, you know, say, you know, this city, and you're not accepting applicants from another city, and it just so happens, unrelated to what you're looking for. You know, you're not trying to be biased or anything. You just, you know, let's say you want people that live within 10 minutes of your club. Uh, So you only accept people that live within a city within 10 minutes. And it happens that really only white people live within 10 minutes of your club. Uh, And so you're not looking at people that live outside of 10 minutes and therefore you're excluding anybody that's not white You could have uh, an implicit bias, uh, which is essentially a discriminatory practice, uh, and the courts are going to find that you are are violating all sorts of laws. Uh, And you know, at the end of the day, really, it's it's most people wouldn't think, oh, you know, I'm being discriminatory by, you know, only accepting people within ten miles of my club. You know, it makes sense; I'm not discriminating against anybody. But these are kind of the potholes that a lot of people aren't aware of, uh, and the practices that they employ that you know get them in trouble
1: sure well that's why lawyers exist right yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) that we need to take all of your money that's the only.
1: do you see that you mentioned employee unions or unions forming has that happened do you have you seen that in clubs in the club industry space at all
0: i i have actually i used to work at a union shop and uh i was actually kind of surprised but it depends It, it tends to be somewhat localized in the sense that unions will you know be in an area, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily widespread, uh, but it definitely exists. And, uh, you know, you'd be surprised. I think a lot of times, you know, it's hard because of the seasonal nature of clubs, it's hard to have a union because you, you're going to have a hard push to, to get people that, uh, you know, want to sign on board, especially if you have people that are going off to college and you know, might not be with the club for a while, but some of these clubs that have people that've worked there for 10, 20 years, you know, they're they're a powder keg because, uh, you know, if, if you've got people first that have been there a long time, they probably have grievances and they have a vested interest in staying there and making sure that, you know, they're um, getting all of the benefits of employment. So, uh, yeah, you definitely do see it. I would say um, you're probably going to see more of an uptick as we go along just because I think, you know, it's, it's cyclical. Uh, and, you know, clubs have been relatively... Uh, inoculated against unions for a while, but I, uh, you know, especially with this. Um, have you heard about the Garden City lawsuit in uh, the Garden City? I think it's Garden City Country Club uh, here mm-hmm. in New York. So, mm-hmm. um, going back to classification, so I was mentioning, right, you classify somebody, uh, you have to pay a minimum wage if they're an employee and things like that. Well, one of the big issues is caddies, you know, are caddies employees? You know, because there's all sorts of things, you know, there's show up pay. Uh, if if your employee shows up to work, even if you told them not to, you know, if you didn't give them enough notice, you're required to pay them, uh, you know, a certain amount of money. You know, you have to pay them. I think it's in New York four hours or whatever the length of their shift is, whichever one's lower. Um, but anyways, this this lawsuit, this caddy is is filing a class action lawsuit claiming that he's an employee and therefore entitled to things like minimum wage. But then, of course, because you know it's not just one caddy, it's affecting all the caddies at the club there uh you know becoming class action and that's you know that's a real easy way that a union could step in there and say hey you know let us help you figure out you know we'll, we'll help you uh you know get the lawsuit off the ground we'll help provide legal representation you know sign up with the union and that's a, a real easy way that a club could find itself on the wrong end of a bargaining table with a union that uh, you know they weren't even prepared for
1: yeah that sounds really scary um yeah. Do you find that most clubs have contracts with their employees right now?
0: uh with their employees, I would say no, uh generally not just because it's it's usually seasonal, so you're not going to there's not that need I mean with the general managers, things like that, yeah uh, you know generally speaking, but even I would say assistant general managers, you know anything other than maybe the superintendent, the general manager, or maybe you know a dining room manager or somebody if mm-hmm. you're at a a bigger space um you know they, they don't because like i said a lot of these clubs just don't realize you know that they they do they've got so much on their plate right so it's hard for them to to sit down and look through employment guidance and say all right well here's what i need to do with this aspect you know if you're trying to balance a budget and you've got you know 50 employees and you know you've got to make sure that the food is delivered and all this stuff you know it's kind of it's it's easy to say all right well i'm i'm a good guy i don't discriminate against anybody i should be fine uh, and, and generally speaking, you know, as long as you're not a jerk, you know, and you don't make your employees hate you, they're not going to come back, uh, angry and, and sue you. But, uh, the, the issue is that that doesn't mean they can't. Right. Uh, and, and I think a lot of clubs don't necessarily realize that, um, you know, there, <laughs> there's a lot of things you can get sued for. So yeah, it's you know, just I, why,
1: I, why open yourself up to risk if you don't have to is, is to me, always the lesson. Uh, do you have, do you help? Clubs write these contracts, and do you suggest that they do things like that with with it, some of the lower employees?
0: Exactly. So, so I, I mean, so I'll, I'll take a step back and talk about a little bit of what we do. So, we we provide guidance. So, you know, for a monthly fee, you think of us as a consigliere. Uh, you know, if you have uh, questions about, hey, I have this employee. Uh, you know, I want to fire him. You know, for instance, I have a, a a client who had an employee. He was a terrible employee. Uh, they wanted to fire him. Uh, but he went on, he didn't take break. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going my, I hurt my back. I'm I'm not coming to work. And they're like, all right, that's great. Uh, he said, uh, you know, but if you hold my job open, you know, I might take it, I might come back and, and take it in a couple months. And so that's a gray area because family medical leave act says that you can't fire somebody for taking time off um, to, you know, the, the, for qualifying medical leave. Uh, absences. Right. So there's a gray area. Like, can I fire this guy? He's a bad employee, you know, but he's not that bad employee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so what we do is we provide guidance. So, you know, in that case, a contract wouldn't necessarily be required, but you know, what, what our clients will do is they'll call and say, you know, Hey, I've got this situation. You know, what do you think? What can I do? I mean, we, we will do contracts. We'll work on handbooks. You know, if, if you uh, want to redo your handbook or you want to make sure that there's nothing in your handbook that um, you know, that, Crosses any lines it shouldn't. Uh, you know, we're we're pretty much a full service employee employment law guidance service uh, that that functions like I said as a conciliary. You know, anytime you have a question, you can give us a call. You know, we'll, we'll walk you through your processes. You know, uh, we'll we'll train your management team so that they know. Um, you know, for instance, uh, a lot of times insurance will, uh, if you tell your insurance company that you're taking like sexual harassment training or you know something of that nature they will lower your premiums. So we'll come into a club and you know, we'll we'll get the general manager, the superintendent, the dining room manager, the clubhouse manager. Uh, we'll sit them down one day and we'll have like a sexual harassment training seminar or a discrimination in hiring seminar to, you know, kind of tell them what the laws are, tell them how to kind of make sure they're doing things the right thing. Uh, and then they can go to their insurance uh, provider. And, and if the insurance provider, uh, you know, has the, the right program, they can get a discount on their insurance. So, uh, you know, anything really related to employment law uh, as it applies to clubs is kind of in our wheelhouse. And, and you know, if you look actually on my LinkedIn profile, Learned Counselor, that's one of the things when I graduated from law school, one of my good friends, Richard, told me he wanted to be, and I thought that was genius, is a Learned Counselor. You know, uh, we take it upon ourselves to know the employment laws so that you can focus on running your club, so that anytime you have a question, you know, we're the ones that can can deal with it. And, you know, we keep our, our clients informed. One of the things we do is we send out uh, email blasts every couple of weeks, you know, just with a, a little need to know tidbit, you know, hey, did you know about in, implicit bias and hiring? Uh, you know, it's just enough so that you're aware because, you know, these people get hundreds of emails and probably don't even read half of them. So, you know, I try to keep it below, you know, a paragraph, you know, just kind of to, to keep people informed. Uh, and then, like I said, in, in the instance where, they have questions, then they do have that resource because one of the issues a lot of these clubs uh, run into is uh, and I think this is a big reason that that uh, there's such a need for my services is that they reach out to employment lawyers only when they get tagged for something. Right. So this the Garden City Club, it, you know, probably reached out to a lawyer after they were served with papers and they all have outside counsel. Um, but they don't think to reach out to lawyers before to make sure, for instance, that their handbook's up to date. Uh, and the reason is because, generally speaking, you know, a lawyer can be a, a very high cost and and relatively unpredictable cost. Uh, you know, to, to deal with, you don't know how much it's going to cost to have somebody review your handbook, uh, things like that. So one of the, the the ways that I that we distinguish ourselves is, you know, we we want to have a a low cost and, and predictable uh, budget line, a uh, line item, so that you know, you know, every month you're going to be paying this much, and you've got, uh, you know, the, the benefit of of having this lawyer here who's going to work with you to accomplish these things. You know, for instance, the average uh, salary of an HR rep in New York, an HR director, is like sixty five thousand dollars a year. So you know, you think, well, yeah, no wonder clubs don't hire these people when they can cover their uh, bare minimums. But you know, there's a lot of things that HR directors then can't do. So, for a fraction of the cost, then we'll come in, and we will provide the services an HR director would do. We'll provide extra services they can't do, for instance, providing our legal opinion, uh, and you won't have to worry about you know getting that bill in the mail from the law firm for you know eight thousand dollars because uh, you know you had a question that could have been dealt with uh, earlier, and uh, you kind of have that peace of mind and then like I said, you can focus on running your club
1: nice uh, that's awesome if folks want to reach out to you, Chase, how do they do that? Absolutely. So, uh, well,
0: my cell phone number is uh, 917-396-2286. Uh, and my email is chase, C-H-A-S-E at victorcorp victor
1: right. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing some, some of those thoughts with us today, Chase, and I hope you have a good rest of your day.
0: Thank you, Gabe. You too.
1: Well, that's a wrap for Private Club Radio this week. Thanks so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to have you spend a little time here. And I really value the fact that you do that. I don't take that for granted. Thanks for spending some time with us on Private Club Radio. We'll see you here next time, next Monday, same time, same channel. (laughs) Until then, here's to your membership success.